In this second half of a recording with Darren Phil, we focus on pension tax reform, a thing he knows quite a lot about after his years in the pensions policy team at the Treasury. We also talk about small pots and where the industry is heading in dealing with this problem. Partly involves getting rid of the Hungarian plumbers. Darren also sets some clear expectations around where we might get legislation. Uh, okay, Darren. So you mentioned when we were talking just now about uh, master trusts, you mentioned university schemes. So just a quick question in passing. Will the uh, university superannuation scheme move to CDC, do you think? Oh, that's a difficult question, Tom. I think that CDC will have its time in the UK. I think it's obviously being implemented for Royal Mail at the moment. And I think a lot of eyes are on that. And it's a particular model of CDC, as we know. And and we know that the DWP are quite keen to sort of look for other avenues where this might be explored. I don't see why not, actually. It's got a lot of... And particularly the pickle they're in with the DB scheme, a collective defined contribution scheme kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I was was going to say, yeah. So so ultimately, um, the sector has a lot of characteristics that could deliver better pension outcomes through CDC through less burden on employers. I can't really comment on the relative you know, dynamics of the university sector versus the, the postal sector and mm. stuff. But ultimately, some of the stuff that you can quite often levy against CDC in terms of criticisms, in terms of you know, inadequate contributions, not necessarily having the throughput of individuals, compulsion, all of that type of stuff, you can probably get around in sectors like that. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point, you know, USS started actively looking at CDC. But as we know that, you know, negotiations on this stuff are incredibly political, small p. I think that quite often, as as always is the case with these things, but there's a sort of prolonged negotiation that has to occur, you know, to get to that point. So, you know, is it going to happen anytime soon? I'd be surprised. But, you know, it's a likely candidate for the next one, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Though, I mean, you know, you talked about the political challenges. The lecturers are not going out down without a fight, are they? In terms they're of they're not. Their, no, exactly. Their exactly. DB benefits they're hanging on to. So, is Bill Galvin still there? He is. Yeah, he's still Bill CEO of the USS. Yeah. And, and the rest of them, they've got some work to do, haven't they? They have. Yeah, and um, you know, they're they're doing a good job. Yeah, they're doing yeah, a good absolutely. job, and and you've got a bunch of people there that are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah? and and sometimes it's difficult to please everyone all of the time and quite often you end up not pleasing at anyone any of the time yeah. but you know in a way um i don't think you can always question the motivation that people are you know are trying to do the right thing and you know make sure that the scheme is sustainable making sure people get their benefits and you know making sure that you know at the end of the day people are getting good pensions that's what we're here for. So, so one of the particular challenges with collective defined contribution schemes, there are a number, uh, yep. you know, cohort risks yep. and cross subsidies between generations, but death benefits is kind of an interesting bit. And, you know, I think back to the decision in the dying days of George Osborne's tenure at the Treasury to allow, this would have been late 
2014, I guess. Yeah, end of 2014. Um, when, when he said, look, I'll tell you what, you can, you know, if you die before the age of 75, you can just have all your money tax-free. And even if you die after 75, it's only taxable in the hands of the recipient yeah. when they take the money out, uh, which at the time then, and I still think now, was just ridiculously generous. You know, you've had all this tax relief to put the money in, you've had all this tax-free growth, and then the money just kind of washes out the other side tax-free. Just seems crazy. There was a seminar. Oh, what was it? It was, it was a PSA investment conference, actually. And I think Carl Emerson from the OFS yes. was yes. sort of talking about some of this stuff, just saying that, you know, it was pretty mad. And actually, what, what that policy did was it pretty much incentivizes people to use up other forms of saving, yeah. income, et cetera, et cetera, assets first, yep. because it allows you to sort of pass your wealth on tax-free, which... It just, it's just bizarre policymaking. <laughs> it's entirely um, antithetical to the whole point of pensions in the first place, isn't it? Pensions provide well, exactly. you with a retirement income. You know? No, no, exactly. no, actually what you must do is hoard that money and run everything else down. <laughs> so, but, but, but also, if you're trying to persuade someone to join into a CDC scheme, which is inherently built around that death benefit cross-subsidy to share the unused yeah. money across the other members to provide a, a fair return for everybody... You've got a choice to make then, doing do I buy into that collective solution or do I want to go down the individual route? And I look exactly, at the, the, yeah. the, the attractions of the individual route and that can be a tough choice. You know, if I were trying to really promote CDC schemes here in the UK, one of the first things I'd do would be to go back and look at those death benefit rules. There's a wider point there, Tom. I don't, I don't disagree that they need looking at, they certainly do. Bizarre policy, but there we are. Those wider, crazy um, guys in the Treasury, eh, Darren? Exactly, you know, I know it wouldn't have happened in my day. We, we probably did a lot worse, actually. There's a wider point here about tax relief, though, isn't there, that we've, we've had many conversations over whiskey about and stuff. And I think we, we even sort of have claimed to have solved it at one point. <laughs> but we, we were, neither of us probably could remember the I outcome think we lost of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, in, in a way, this is the problem with piecemeal policy making. Yeah. yeah. That what you're doing is you might be doing something for a particular purpose or a political purpose or to address a particular issue. But what you're not necessarily doing is you're not stepping back and thinking, okay, what are we trying to achieve with this system? And tax relief, we, we, we started off this conversation talking about my time at the Treasury and I was quick to point out that I... I joined the pensions team, you know, the year after A-Day. Mm -hmm. And the problem with A-Day is that it was really, you know, a good idea. Yeah, but it wasn't carried through enough, was it? Exactly. And it was a good idea at the time, yeah, yeah because actually the Treasury was awash with cash at the time. Yeah. It was all about simplification. It was all yeah. about bringing regimes together and all of that type of stuff. But then the trouble is when you try to do that, you're so worried about avoidance and you know, the gaming the system and all of that, you get so many sort of transitional type things that means that you've got as much complexity as you, you know, had to start off with. And then because you've sort of introduced a system of a lifetime allowance and an annual allowance, which is actually quite, it's not a daft thing to do, but then you sort of see that as a means of limiting control and limiting the value of tax relief or the cost of tax relief, should I say, which means you start messing about with those numbers and, mm. and using those as levers to help with the fiscal position, and then you start creating all sorts of unintended consequences and stuff. So what starts as a good idea, you know, pension simplification, how can we take these six, seven ridiculous pensions regimes for tax relief that we had before, how can we simplify it, how can we can bring this all together, turns into a right mess. I, and, I, and I think... That does happen across pensions quite a lot. It happens across other policy areas quite a lot. But one of the advantages of auto enrolment and the Turner Commission and all of that is 
okay, it, it, it took a step back from a lot of this stuff and said, okay, what are we trying to achieve with this system? And importantly, what are the trade-offs and the consequences of addressing those trade-offs? Yeah. And then build a consensus around that. And and it feels to me that, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll be up for looking at the sort of the, the deaf thing like you suggest, but I think it would only ever be a partial solution unless we sort of look at it within this sort of wider, wider context of, okay, what do we want the pensions tax regime to actually achieve? Yeah, absolutely agree. And the context of the Turner Review, sort of 2004, the government of the day had a lot of political capital, so in, it was in a position basically to do what it liked, right? The Tory opposition was still in disarray. I can't remember. Yep. I think that was probably William Hague at that point. It might have been Michael Howard. Was it Ian Duncan Smith? You know, it was, it was the wilderness years for the Tory party. And, yep. and I thought the really grown-up thing to do, okay, let's go and build a consensus. Let's do the Turner Commission. Let's do this properly. Let's get everybody on the same page together and then use the political capital we've got to drive through that consensus reform. And I thought that was yep. done really, really well. I think that's right. But I'm um, just going back to one of the conversations we had right at the start around the sort of the, the TBGBs. <laughs> yeah, you know, probably, you know, the, the political context was quite interesting because there was probably more opposition from, you know, Number 11 mm. in terms of some of this stuff than there was from the opposition. So it would be lovely to see what was done then repeated now. And, you know, I agree with you just addressing one little bit of it, like the death benefits, would probably just cause as many new problems as it would solve. And I was chatting with Tom Selby about this. It would have been lovely to see them take advantage of this crisis moment to say, look, while we've got the crisis on, this is a thing we're going to do. I suspect they just yeah. didn't have the bandwidth for it right now. I could imagine um, so. And it's, it's not easy stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Osborne had nice. a decent crack at it. I mean, you know, the Lifetime ISA was just a bit of a fudge solution in the end. Yeah. So it kind of needs that again doesn't it it needs it needs someone with the bandwidth and the political capital and the time to say okay let's get everybody in the room together and let's strip all this down and, and simplify it and it's not like the industry's short of good suggestions you know whether they were concocted over a glass of whiskey or not nathan long my, my former colleague at hargreaves lansdowne came up with some really good ideas around really just starting from the point of what are we trying to achieve here to your point what is the purpose of the pension and what is the purpose of the tax relief and then how do we drive outcomes that achieve that and it doesn't you know it feels like we've got so far away from that approach it would be lovely to start that having got to where we have now with the present government it feels like that door is closed again for the duration of this parliament i think for for the duration of this parliament not least because of the bandwidth issues and everything that's going on but it's something that we should continue plugging away at i think and i think you know people often talk about oh we need a standing pensions commission and all of that type of stuff and I, i i say we don't yeah, because a standing pensions commissions basically, you know, takes the politics out of pensions, which you can never do, because they're big political questions, tax spend, regulation. You know, politicians are paid for making decisions, and ministers are paid for making decisions. You know, hiding behind a, a standing pensions commission has never sort of felt yeah. that attractive for yeah. me. Steve, I'll interrupt you briefly. Steve Webb argued this really well. He said, "Look, you know, if you've been through the mill." of getting selected as a candidate, of standing against your <laughs> opponent, of getting into getting into Parliament, of then climbing into, you know, getting up the greasy pole far enough to become a junior minister. You know, if you've invested years of your life accruing that kind of power, if you've been through that kind of filtering process, and, and, and you've, been a, you've been appointed by your electorate and by the government specifically to do their job, why, why would you then abrogate that responsibility and just give it away to a commission? It makes no sense. Mm. No, exactly. So, exactly, so, so exactly. commissions do have a place, well, but selectively. But, but I do, and I, I think commissions are about selective issues. Yeah. So, and, and I think tax relief, you know, 
is potentially one that could fall into that. Because I think that the sort of George Osborne stuff was fine as it went, but it never really asked some of the fundamental questions in terms of what we're trying to achieve with the system. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, to my mind, um, you, you, we should start with the outcome that we're trying to achieve. Oh. Yeah. And then you can, once you build a consensus around outcomes, then you can sort of start having the, the conversations as to how do you best achieve those outcomes. So the Osborne stuff almost started too far down the road. And I think an independent commission allows you to sort of ask some of those questions. I do think, though, that there is a role for... We, you know, we've got the Office of Budget Responsibility yep. and they provide that sort of independent check and balance on the numbers. And, and that's got to be a good thing. And, and I think we could do something something like that in pensions as well, because ultimately, you know, you should never take power away from ministers to make decisions about tax spend, regulation, mm. future of auto enrolment, all of that type of stuff. Yeah. For the reasons we've already chatted about. And inevitably, there are trade offs. Yeah. Mm. And there are consequences of taking one course of action over another course of action. And what I would like to see is those trade-offs being more clearly articulated. Yeah. 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 And to governors and, and, to and, choose, and, you still expect the ministers to make the choice, but help them yeah. make informed decisions, right? Exactly. And and actually explain the consequences of that decision. Yeah. And I think what that would help with is more of a holistic, joined-up approach to policy making. And to some degree, um, isn't this where the PPI are going? I know that's not what they're trying to be, but they are providing a really useful public service in terms of the research and the in- insights that they, they produce. Well, 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 exactly. It's sort of almost like a ready-made organisation for, for doing some of that. They're doing lots of work at the moment on you know what a framework for UK pension saving could look like. And again, that's potentially quite exciting because, you know, having a framework means that you can start analysing stuff against different objectives of that framework yep. to be able to sort of start exploring some of these trade-offs. And I think that will, you know, on the whole, help with good policy making. And it's the problem we've got in pensions is that, you know, ministers, you know, tend to be, you know, have having the scheme of things a relatively short political life cycle. Like, you know, we've we've been lucky over the past sort of fifteen years or so that we had Steve Webb doing the job for yeah. five odd years and I think Guy is approaching five years yeah, now. Guy's had a pretty Guy good stretch, yeah. You know, and, and that's quite unusual for pensions minister. Under Labour it was a real revolving door, I seem to remember. But, you know, some of the policies that Steve introduced and some of the stuff that Guy's doing now, yeah. it won't have a, um, an impact for 10, 15, 20, 30 years' time. And there's that real sort of trade-off between, OK, how can I seem to be having an impact now, which is obviously important from a political perspective, and we totally understand and get that and stuff, versus, you know, what's right for the pension system as a whole, given that, you know, ultimately it's about managing someone's savings over a... A 40, 50, 60-year time horizon. So one of the things Guy is wrestling with at the moment, and actually the PPI have done some some good work around this, is the small pots problem. Mm. And the PPI produced a really good paper saying, like, here are your different policy solutions, and these are the impacts, the different routes we could go down with all of this. And that's now been whittled down to essentially to three answers, I think it's fair to say. So we could do the Pot follows member, which, by the way, listening to the select committee hearing the other day, 
guy did a pretty good job of pretending it was his own idea. You know, I can understand why there might be a little needle between him and Steve Webb. And, and he didn't actually say it was his idea, but the way he talked about it, you might have been forgiven for thinking it was his idea. Anyway, there's Pot Follows member and Central Consolidator or a kind of carousel multiple consolidator yeah. kind of route and things like a pot for life which i've always been a fan of you know that's been thrown to one yeah. side for now so what's your sense of where we go next with all of that darren really good question and i think pot for life will always be here in the background and it's something i've always found very attractive because one of the problems with auto enrollment is that we we want people to engage but we don't give people the ability to choose and, and that is one of the, the downsides. But I don't think it's necessarily top of the pile, as you suggest, for solving the smallpox issue. But I think it will come back into the mix in terms of a bigger discussion about the future of our pension sector, which to me is a good thing, because I think the, the big debate that we need to have is the, the role of inertia versus the role of engagement. Yeah. Because, you know, in a way, we're having sort of proxy debates around that at the moment without actually sort of really thinking through what we want this system to look like, building on auto moment. So anyway, back to your question, small pots. So I think this was um, looked at before. Obviously, DWP did a lot of work on it back in 2013, 2014, and um, actually legislated and got stuff on the statute book for, for Pot Fuller's member. The it was problem was, it was... plug on that, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was, yeah. One of the first things he did. I think there was a lot of opposition from the industry at the time. And I can tell you why, yeah. And I think, in a way, it was an idea that was before its time, Mm. yeah. So I was at People's at the time, and we were looking at the administrative cost of transferring a pension and all this type of stuff. And and remember, you know, we were were serving really sort of low-income people, minimum auto-enrollment contributions. Quite often, the the pot might be less than 50 quid, Yeah. yeah? And, you know, it could cost us 50 quid to move that pot, okay? So that's not 50 quid of income. That's 50 quid value of the pot with a 5% AMC on that, you know. No, not 5% AMC, a 0.5 AMC, so 50 bips. The economics just didn't work, yeah? yeah? So the cost of transfers was prohibitively high and probably still is now, yeah? So one of the things I like about the work that the DWP is doing at the moment is, like, it recognises that if you're going to solve the smallpox problem, you need to do something at scale, which means moving a lot of money and a lot of data around the system at speed in a highly efficient way. And ultimately, it only works if you can get the cost down to pence mm. rather than tens of pounds. And I think that was a key difference between where we are now mm. to where we were back then. Yeah, because I think that if the web proposals were introduced, that would have caused quite a lot of harm to the sort of fledgling auto enrollment providers at the time. You know, so that was one of the reasons we were particularly concerned about it. Well, there's a a few, but one of the other reasons was that I think Steve was talking about, you know, oh, it wasn't dealing with small pots, it was Operation Big Fat Pot. Yeah. Yeah. And, And there's nothing wrong with that per se. Yeah, and actually, we want people to consolidate as a whole. We want people to get up to, you know, to have decent pots. And I think Steve argued very eloquently at the time, you know, once the, the value of your pension pot is, the, I don't know, the size of a car purchase or something, you start taking it a bit more seriously and stuff. And he's probably totally right on that. But, you know, think about where we were in 2014 and indeed think about where we are now. If you're auto-transferring pots of less than £10,000 as a new auto-enrollment provider, God, that's going to impact on your business because that's basically every pot. So the market wasn't necessarily mature enough from some of those new entrants that were doing the heavy lifting on auto-enrollment 
to make this work. It would have killed the business model, basically. Yeah. So there were some market pressures and market dynamics there that really got in the way of it. But also we had um, we didn't have things like master trust authorization. We we didn't have charge caps. We didn't have as much product regulation as we do now. So the fiduciary um, so risk of sending the money to somewhere that were to the members' detriment was was a lot higher than it was. Was a lot higher than it is now. So I think we fixed some of that stuff. And I think that, you know, in a way, the proposals now are almost like an evolution of the debate we were having then. And I think, you know, back in 2014, 2015, DWP were right to sort of look at this as an issue that needs addressing. I just think that the policy prescriptions at the time weren't really workable for where we were from a market perspective and a regulatory perspective and an industry perspective i think where we are getting to now is schemes start maturing and you know we're starting to focus on the right issues in terms of getting the cost of transfers down and all of that type of stuff i think there's more chance of success where do i think we'll end up i, th- I think default consolidated models are just too they, they have too much potential to cause market harm yeah and distort the market why um you could take it to a logical point of why, why don't you just have one provider? Right. So I'm more of a fan now, believe it or not, of a pot follows member type model right. for small pots. But actually you're, you're having the automatic transfers going between schemes that are held to slightly higher standards. Hmm. So it might be slightly higher standards to what they, you know, if you're, so if you're receiving an automatic transfer, you're held to slightly higher standards than you would be if you weren't a scheme that could receive these things. So basically what you're doing is you're you're getting that portfolio's member approach, you're consolidating with your active providers and stuff. You've got the market consolidating anyway, yeah, in terms of number of providers yeah. and all of that type of stuff. So basically you're getting to you're getting some of the benefits of the default consolidator model, i.e. through scale, consolidation through active members and stuff without basically just creating a, a duopoly or yeah. you know an oligopoly or you know whatever the terms actually are on that so so i think there's you know we, we will head to something like that i think one of the key challenges now is that this only really works if you make it automatic right so you need yeah. to legislate uh, for it yeah you need to legislate for it and we've obviously got some stuff in terms of primary legislation from what was done in 2014 it probably isn't enough to introduce the the framework that could make it work at the moment and we know that the government is sort of you know not flush with legislative time mm. at the moment so it feels to me that this is a, an issue that needs to be addressed but it's probably something that you know isn't going to be the number one priority for the next pensions bill but you know i can actually see something happening on this early in the next session and do you think by then they will have enough evidence to guide an informed decision about what that legislation should look like? I think one of the advantages of where we've got to, given the lack of legislative time, Mm. is we've got time to be able to look at this and look at it properly and make sure that we are gathering the evidence. I think the key thing is to keep the pace up on that. Yeah. Yeah, because you know what it's like if you don't have that burning platform, then oh, you know, we can do it tomorrow. But, you know, some of the discussions I've been in in terms of mapping transfer processes, looking at the pros and cons of different models, you know, there's so much more work and engagement that's gone in 
to this this time than there was previously. And I think that, you know, there are some things and some aspects of this that we can sort before you actually go nap on the model, before you you had your, you know, cycle into the sunset, let's call it that. Um, You were chair of uh, the STAR initiative, which was um, looking at improving the speed of transfers and stuff. And actually, when you start looking looking at that, and, you know, that was about a lot about MI and accreditation Mm -hmm. and raising standards and stuff. Yeah, and and transparency and all, all good stuff but you know like you, you look at it and you start thinking well you wouldn't start from here would you yeah. do you know what i mean in terms of just the general process around some of this stuff and you know what what amazed me about some of the conversations we were having there was okay yeah this actually isn't just about mi and transparency if we're going to do this properly we need to sort of fundamentally re-engineer some of these processes and i think that's starting to come to the forefront of people's thinking yes on the flip side of this as well remember we've got the whole scam stuff and the scams amber flags and red flags and all of that yeah so we're having to be a, a lot more sophisticated when it comes to thinking about how we deal with transfers because that all complicates and slows things down right well potentially yeah um but again, it comes down to pragmatism. I think it comes down to like, you know, like if you're transferring money from Smart to Nest, for example, you probably know that Nest is pretty bona fide. Yeah. And, you know, it's about sort of automating that stuff and making sure that you've got a lot of straight through stuff that you can just do because you know it's right or and it's of small value and low risk and all of that type of stuff. And it's not to say that you can be more cavalier with small value stuff, but ultimately we know that vast numbers of transfers or small pot transfers will take place between the four largest master trusts. Yeah. You know, so... The due diligence the has been chain. done, right? Exactly, exactly. There's the, you can sort of aggregate this stuff up. You can bulk it up, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if you're sending something out to someone that you've never sent a transfer to before, then you can have a separate process for this. And I think it's the triaging of this that will be really important going forward. Uh, and I don't uh, think think enough of, of thought has traditionally or historically being given to that triaging. It's almost like we've just had one process yeah. and everything goes through this process and we need to get a bit more sophisticated than that. Now, and I'm really interested in what more could be done. You know, no one wants to operate a, a genuinely and take responsibility for a whitelist. No one wants to take responsibility for saying, I've done due diligence on that firm over there. You can send them your money because if it turns out there's a problem, you're on the hook for it, right? So there's that. But I think you could get to a point where, you know, if Standard Life's sending the money to Hargreaves Lansdowne or or Smart Pensions is sending the money to Now Pensions or whatever, you know, you could cover off a lot of the industry's transfers in a streamlined kind of way. And, you know, if that makes 80% or 90% of the transfers faster, and then we just have to run exceptions on those slightly odder cases at the margins for, with firms that, that don't often appear on the radar, you know, that's fine. We'll kick those out. So as you say, you use a triage system. Yeah. No, I think that's 100% right. I think um, there's an 80-20 rule in this. And I think that you will only ever sort out the, the small pots issue through consolidation if you've got something that can deal with stuff at high frequency, high volume, low risk. And that is probably a different process from the processes that we use currently or that we might use in the future for more complicated transfers. How much of a problem for the big master trusts? I mean, you guys have hoovered up lots, millions of customers, right? And I know from the work that the Small Pots Working Group that Andy Cheseldine led, you know, there are millions of really small accounts out there. And you guys aren't earning much money on those small accounts 
right? So how much of a burden on your business are those small pots? How much of a commercial imperative is it to push through a solution to this problem? I, I sort of look at that in, in two ways. One of the things I've been really impressed with in a lot of the conversations I've been involved in on the small pots work is that first and foremost, the primary reason for doing this is to benefit the member. Yeah, and that, and we've got to sort of keep that as a really, really strong anchor. It does members no benefit to have 10 different pots of 50 quid each in those pots. Yes, some diversification might be good, but not that level not, of diversification, like that, yeah. you know. So, you know, there is that strong anchor. And obviously Andy, he's actually, you know, you probably know he's chair of trustee of Smart Master Trust. And, you know, he's very member first on these things. And it's great that he's sort of chairing this stuff from a member first perspective. But also related to that, I think there's, a, there's key questions about the efficiency of the system. And um, if you have a system that is inefficient, and if you have a system that is generating a lot of dead weight cost, that has consequences, you know, and that might have consequences through increased charges elsewhere, lack of resource to develop into other areas of proposition. You know, there's always these trade-offs. So I don't think that the small pot stuff is an existential threat to the master trust sector. I think that, you know, because we've got capital requirements on us, because, you know, we've all got pretty robust business models and we've had the tyres kicked of those by the pensions regulator through authorisation and supervision. I don't think any scheme is going to be really, really struggling as a result of small pots. However, there is that dead weight and that dead weight isn't good for us. It's importantly not good for members. And importantly, it's not good for the pensions ecosystem. So there's, there's a real potential alignment of interest between the different parties to sort of sort this stuff out. So that's where I am on on that. I think that it's better to get this right than to rush it and get it wrong. And as you said, yeah. because of the legislative window, we've got a bit of time to get it right. We've got a bit of time. My big frustration is that if you think about other situations whereby we might be doing matching, we might be sharing data, all of that type of yeah. stuff. You've got this whacking great big pensions dashboard project. Mm. And I'm I'm not a techie expert on this stuff, as you know, Tom, but to, to my mind, there must be pretty massive synergies between dashboard yeah. and some of this type of stuff. But again, you've got a delivery drive to deliver the dashboard by a certain point in time. And, you know, it feels like we're missing the opportunity to join the strands up. And again, that sort of comes down to circumstance and commitments that have been made and different timings on different projects, which can be quite frustrating because at best you end up, you know, having to build things or consider things twice. At worst, you can get policy or you can get initiatives that manifestly work against each other. And it's that joining up that I think is sometimes what's lacking at the moment. I've got I've got one more question on the small parts, but just an observation first. Someone put it to me. It's like there's two sides of a coin here. From, from the member's point of view, it's a multiple pots problem. From the industry's point of view, it's a small pots problem. Yeah. So, yeah. so as you said, no, from a member planning point of view, having 10 pots is just the right pain. From the industry, it's about, well, yeah, but there's an efficiency loss going on here from having to administer those 10 pots. So it's the yeah. same problem looked at from two different ends of the telescope. So my, my question on this is, and it's something I've seen you talk about in the press, is why don't we just give people their £100 back? 
Yeah, so you'll remember the time when we used to have vesting periods in pensions, Tom, yeah, yeah. Um, in the trust sector. I think these, um, Steve Webb actually very correctly shut these things down, short yeah. service refunds, because yeah. I think there was a number of consultants at the start of auto enrolment saying, look, there's a loophole here, which means that you can get your money back. And it means that, okay, while you're auto enrolling people, if you've got a highly transient workforce, then you know, using a trust-based scheme can save you a shed load of money, which wasn't really within the spirit of yeah, auto money. Pockets got a time, big hole so. in the bottom. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. And um, therefore, you know, it was, as I say, quite correctly shut down. I think there's some philosophical arguments around around some of this. Like, you know, and I know the DWP feel very strongly and think very strongly about this. That, you know, once money is in a pensions environment, we need to keep it in a pensions environment. And I, and I sort of get that. I suppose that from a pragmatic point of view, when you're talking a, a pot of maybe one contribution, maybe 30 quid, maybe 50 quid, so you're talking real micro pots. Yeah. Yeah. That sometimes having to sort of develop quite complicated matching solutions, ping money about the system, all of that type of stuff, you know, does it get to the point where the costs just don't outweigh the benefits? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, yes, you've got the sort of purest ideological, you know, this is auto enrollment money, it should stay in an auto enrollment scheme. Up to a point, yes. But then you get to a point which is like, yeah, but to transfer this money from this provider to that provider, to do the matching, to do the due diligence, to, to do whatever you need to do, actually it would be far quicker and far better and a far better member experience just to say, okay, yeah, you can have this 50 quid back. Now, I would not ever want to go back to the world of short service refunds yeah. or you know this for any substantive however defined pension saving but when it comes to you know a couple of rounds in the pub we have to sort of be clear on what the cost benefit analysis actually is to be totally honest with you Tom I don't think it's going to go anywhere because I think there's such an entrenched view within the department as to this isn't the right thing but I think that it's a type of thing that does need looking at. And, you know, I'll certainly be encouraging the, the coordination group and the work to, to actually sort of think through, you know, the arguments and the options on this. And you might come up and say, right, OK, if we can if we can really get a potfuller's member type thing working really, really smoothly and really, really efficiently, yeah. the need for it goes away. And that'll be good. But, you know, we're talking 50 quid. Quite often we're talking about someone who's missed their opt-out window. Yeah. When I was at People's, when I was uh, when now I'm at Smart, some of the biggest complaints that we get, or not biggest complaints, but the most frequent complaints we get are around, oh, I just want my money back. Why have you taken my money? Yeah. yeah, it's like, well, you could have opted out. Oh, yeah, but I didn't. I didn't open the envelope. Yeah, yeah. I didn't open the envelope. Oh, yeah, but I read that and I thought, I'd, you know, yeah. it's like, but the, the opt-out window is a sort of a statutory window and there's only so much that you can do to help members out in that situation. And if that's someone's first experience of auto enrolment and pension saving, not necessarily a great one. Yeah. So I think there's some sort of pragmatism that's sort of needed around some of this. And the other one is the like the Hungarian plumber who's gone back to live in Budapest, you know. Yeah. So so what, what's the point of us hanging on to seventy five quid of his money if he's now working exactly. back, back at home? Yeah. He might come exactly. back and work in the UK one day, but do we really want to hang on to that money and the expectation that he might? There's an efficiency point on this as well, isn't there? So, as I say, I, I'm, we're not talking substantial amounts here, but we can have a debate about what a micro pot actually is. Less than 100 quid feels about right, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think we start there. And I don't think, I think, I think there'd be a lot of industry resistance in getting into the big fat pots, you know, certainly once you start getting into four figures. 
Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it starts getting pretty disruptive at that point, doesn't it? Yeah. Darren, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much. No, well, thank you for inviting me along. It's always a pleasure. Slightly different, not doing it over a beer or a whiskey. <laughs> Next um, time, right? But, you know, I will, um, I'll go and fill up my cup of tea now. I'm glad to see you back in pensions because um, you were missed. Oh, bless you for saying that. That's really kind of you. That's a nice note to finish on. So thank you very much for that. <laughs>